Tonight we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 4. Of course, last time we were together leaving off at the end of Matthew chapter 3, where we had this very dramatic occasion of John baptizing Jesus and Jesus uh, submitting himself to baptism in a way that would be open to a lot of misunderstanding. Jesus acting as if he were just another sinner needing baptism. But as he goes under the water and he comes out, as Luke tells us, he came out praying. Then there was this remarkable uh, occurrence, this this descent of the Holy Spirit like a dove, and the uh, announcement from heaven from God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Very dramatic way that we ended chapter 3. But now when we come to chapter 4, we come to something equally dramatic, if not more so. And it's this great temptation of Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So after being identified with sinners in his baptism, Jesus then again identifies with sinners in his severe temptation. Now, you could say that this was a necessary part of his ministry. Jesus had to do this. Therefore, it says very plainly there in verse 1 that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, you have to admit, this is a remarkable contrast to where we left off in Matthew chapter 3. The glory following Jesus' baptism. You can just picture the scene, can't you? Jesus comes up out of the water. He's praying. And then you have the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in some kind of visible form. You you can't say that it was a bird that came down upon Jesus, but it came down upon him like a dove. And we don't know exactly what that means, to tell you the truth. But I'll tell you this, it was glorious. And then to hear the voice of God the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You do not come to a higher place of glory in the ministry of Jesus until you come to the transfiguration, right? And so this is a moment of great glory in the ministry of Jesus. And then all the way, we're suddenly thrust now into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. At the end of Matthew chapter 3, you have the cool waters of the Jordan. Now you have the barren wilderness. There you had the huge crowds, and now you have solitude and silence. There you had the Spirit resting like a dove, and now the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. There you had the voice of the Father calling him, My beloved Son. Now you have the hiss of Satan, the tempter. There he was anointed, now he's attacked. Then he had the water of baptism, now he has the fire of temptation. And and, in in Matthew chapter 3, at the end of it, the heavens were opened, And now it seems in Matthew chapter 4, hell is opened and Jesus is tempted. Now we need to understand this about the temptations of Jesus. Jesus did not need to be tempted to help him grow. Instead, he endured temptation so that he could identify with us, so that he could know what we go through when we are tempted. And then also he was tempted to demonstrate his own holy, sinless character. You you can think of a great bridge being built across two mountains or two hills. 
and the bid bridge is built and it's engineered and it's built according to specifications and it's very carefully designed and all of that. And you say, well, this, this bridge should be able to hold a truck or several trucks or 20 trucks or whatever you want to say of this particular weight and size. But until you actually drive some trucks across it, you don't really know, do you? It has to be proven. It has to be tested. Well, this was the proving. This was the testing that Jesus was, in fact, the holy, sinless, spotless Son of God. There's something else we need to note about this first verse, where it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit cannot tempt us. The Holy Spirit is God. And James chapter 1, verse 13 tells us that God tempts no one. So it was not the Holy Spirit that tempted Jesus. The Holy Spirit cannot tempt us, but the Holy Spirit may lead us to a place where we might be tempted. Now, this is not to prove something to God. God knows all things, but it's to prove something to us, and it's to prove something to the spiritual beings who watch us, because they are interested in whether or not we will endure or succumb to temptation. Now, again, verses 1 and 2. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, by the way, you should know this. This is one indication for us about the nature of Jesus' temptation. Sometimes people think, well, Jesus wasn't actually tempted the way I am. You know, my temptations are hard. They're really hard. Jesus' temptations, it's like shooting bullets at Superman, right? What happens when you shoot bullets at Superman? They just bounce off his chest. You know, it's no problem for Superman. These temptations were no problem with Jesus. Well, that's the wrong way to think of it entirely. I will agree with you that Jesus was not tempted just the same way you and I are. Jesus was tempted far worse. Now, I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, what does it say here in verse one? Whom was Jesus tempted by? The devil himself. The highest most skilled, most powerful, most cunning, most dangerous tempter. Now look, let's be honest. You and I all the time, we talk about battling Satan and fighting Satan and spiritual warfare. But honestly speaking, literally exactly speaking, have you or I ever really done battle with Satan himself? I strongly suspect not. We're dealing with some lesser demonic being in Satan's infernal hierarchy, right? We're not dealing with Satan himself, oh, but not Jesus. Jesus was tempted by the most skillful tempter that there ever has been. In other words, the, the devil trained somebody, and that guy trained somebody, and that guy trained somebody, and that guy trained somebody, and that's the one you and I are getting tempted by. <laughs> Jesus got tempted by the, by the head one himself. That's one reason why Jesus' temptations were more severe than ours. And I'll give you another reason why as well. You know how it is with us, that there is a sense in which temptation is relieved by giving in to the temptation. You feel the temptation, you feel the temptation, you feel the temptation, and then you finally decide to give in to the temptation, and it's like, oh, well, that's over. The pressure built. Now, you failed. All right, let's not minimize this. I'm not trying to say it's a good thing, but it's a true thing, right? I want you to imagine this with Jesus. Jesus never did yield to temptation. 
Can you imagine the pressure that built up upon Jesus in enduring temptation? I believe that Jesus bore levels of temptation that we will never know by experience. Never. And yet, of course, he emerged from them all as the sinless, spotless Son of God. So he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you should know that many commentators believe that it is improper to refer to this section as the temptation of Jesus because the ancient Greek word that's translated temptation here, this ancient Greek word, perazo, is more often and more accurately translated as testing instead of temptation. In other words, it has a quite different aspect to its meaning. It means much more to test than to tempt. And that's what Jesus was being, right here, is testing. Now, of course, every temptation is a test, is it not? Of course, there's an aspect to testing that is slightly different than temptation. Well, we read again now in verse 2 that he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. Matthew points out to us both the barren desert that Jesus was surviving in, the, the, the Judean wilderness is exactly that, but then he also points out to us that Jesus' severe hunger was experienced after such a long fast. Now, it is said, and look, let's face it, I'm not a medical expert, but I've just heard other people say this, and perhaps it's true, that when hunger pains return after such a long fast, it indicates that the subject is beginning to starve to death. In other words, if you were to fast for an extended period of time, there comes a time in your fast where you stop being hungry. Your, Your body just sort of shuts down the mechanism within your body that calls out for food. It probably just gives up for lack of hope. You know, it just decides, okay, I'm not going to get anything. There's no point in screaming for food anymore. And your body just shuts down. But I've heard it said, and again, I'm not a medical expert, but this is what I've heard said before, that with such a person whose body has stopped being hungry because of an extended fast, when they start feeling hunger pains again, that is the emergency alarm that their body's giving off. Their body is saying, we are now going to start consuming valuable organs and tissues within the body for survival. You're getting close to the point of death. And that is apparently what Jesus was feeling. Now we have to say, that this was a divinely empowered fast. Jesus was able to eat, excuse me, not eat for 40 days. And even though it was a divinely empowered fast, it wasn't uniquely from Jesus' divine nature. Because Moses, in Exodus chapter 34, and Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, also experienced such a divine miracle surviving fast of some 40 days. So it was supernatural, but it was not beyond human capability when empowered by the Spirit of God. And he was tempted for how long? Or tested for 40 days and 40 nights. Doesn't that sound like a familiar period of time of testing? Uh, The waters of Noah's flood were on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And you can say that this here, 
Jesus in the wilderness and Israel in the wilderness, both of them in the wilderness for periods of 40, 40 days, 40 years. Jesus is now going to succeed where Israel as a nation had failed. And by the way, let me say one more thing before we go on to verse 3. We should understand that this was not self-denial just for the sake of self-denial. Or worse, it was not for the sake of building spiritual pride. This was fasting or self-denial received in the proper way. It was to force Jesus to be dependent upon God as Father. That was really the whole spirit of it. That's what such a period of self-denial does. Ideally, it simply forces us to depend upon God the Father. I can't go into verse 3 without reminding ourselves of a passage of Scripture from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Let me read it to you. It says plainly, He, meaning Jesus, Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And this was one occasion where Jesus suffered under these temptations in the wilderness and thereby he learned obedience. Now, starting at verse 3, we're going to have a series of three temptations. And it's fascinating to notice these temptations and how Jesus, the Son of God, responded to them. So let's look first first temptation, verses 3 and 4. It says, Now when the tempter came to him... You know, maybe we should just stop right there. I, I like how Matthew phrases that. When the tempter came. You know, that's how it is in our lives. It's not a question of if the tempter will come into your life. It's not a question of if. It's only a question of when. When will he come? We will face temptation on this earth until we go to glory. That's the only matter of it. I mean, you could just get rid of that right now. Get used to that right now. Until you go into heaven, you are going to face temptation. And if you don't think you are ever facing temptation, then you're giving into it so quickly that you don't even have time to analyze that you're being tempted. So understand this. Whatever you want to do, you are going to be tempted. God had only one son without sin but he has no sons without temptation. None, not even Jesus, the Son of God. And when we think about it, if anybody should have been spared temptation, at this point, it should have been Jesus. Think of what Jesus was doing. Think of what Jesus was doing when the Spirit took him away into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was in a specially devout frame of mind before his temptation. There he is, praying, coming up out of the waters of baptism. He's in prayer. And what does the Spirit do in his life next? Takes him away to be tempted. Jesus was engaged in an act of public obedience to his Father's will before he was tempted. There he is being baptized. He is totally obedient to his Father, and then the Spirit takes him away, and he's tempted. Jesus was in a very humble frame of mind before his temptation. There he is identifying with sinners humbling himself, yet the Spirit takes him away, and he's tempted. Jesus was blessed with a heavenly assurance of his sonship before his temptation. He heard the voice from heaven, as as everybody did. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. He was filled with the Holy Spirit before his temptation. And 
He was completely separated from the world before his temptation. Where is Jesus when he's tempted? Is he on the streets of Capernaum or Jerusalem or Nazareth or, or some other more wicked city like Caesarea or Rome? No. Jesus is completely separated from the world, completely in the will of his Father, and yet he is sent away to endure this season of temptation. We will be tempted. So what happened? Verse 3 again. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. Now, a more literal translation of that would not be, if you are the Son of God. A more literal translation would be, since you are the Son of God. Satan was not questioning Jesus' deity here. That wasn't the angle or the, the method of his attack. Not at all. Instead, he challenged Jesus to demonstrate his deity through... The miraculous work. And what was the miraculous work? To command that these stones become bread. You can just picture the scene, right? There's Jesus out in the wilderness. There's rocks everywhere. Satan comes to him, well, you don't have any bread, do you? But there's a lot of stones around here. Why don't you command that some of these stones be made bread? Do you understand what this temptation was? This was a temptation to use God's gifts for selfish purposes. Does anybody in this room doubt that Jesus had the power and the ability to make any one of those stones bread? He had the power to create a whole bakery right there out in the wilderness if he so wanted. There's not a single doubt about his power or his ability to do such things. The same Lord Jesus who could walk on the water. The same Lord Jesus who could quiet the storm. The same Lord Jesus who could multiply bread and fishes. He could transform stones into bread at a moment's notice. After all, he did a pretty good job changing water into wine, right? I don't think stones into bread is one bit more difficult. But here was the catch. Here was the hook in Satan's bait. The suggestion was that Jesus used these miraculous powers, these miraculous abilities that he had to provide food for himself. And by the way, did you notice here, this was not a temptation to miraculously create great riches. It wasn't a, a, a temptation to create yourself a palace or, 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 or luxuries or gold or anything like that. The Bible has many, many accounts of miraculous provision, and some of them are at the hands of Jesus. Yet Jesus refused to command that these stones become bread, especially at the instigation of Satan. Don't you see what's being done here? Jesus was being tested at the point of his strengths. Where was he? I mean, Jesus could do anything he wanted to miraculously. He had the power. He was being tested through his gifts, through his strengths. And would he allow his strengths to become traps? This was the great difficulty that Jesus was faced with here. And we could say that the same temptation came to Jesus on the cross. There in the wilderness, Satan said, If you're the Son of God, 
Make these stones become bread. And what did the mockers say to Jesus on the cross? They said, if you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Isn't that the same thing? Didn't the same temptation come to Jesus again as he hung on the cross? So what did Jesus do here in the wilderness? You have to love how it says it there in verses 3 and 4. It says, but he answered. Now, by the way, did you notice that Jesus did not silently disagree with Satan? He didn't just mentally disagree. He answered him, and he answered him from the word of God. Now, I have to be honest with you. We do not know exactly how this voice of Satan came to Jesus. Was it manifested in an individual? Did Satan take on a physical form and appear to Jesus in that way? It could have been, right? Did Jesus just hear an audible voice that was actually Satan's voice? We really don't know. Did Jesus merely hear the voice in his mind? We don't know. But the sense of the text is fairly clear that Jesus answered not merely with his thoughts, but with his voice, and he protected that voice, or he he answered that voice from the word of God. And Jesus quoted a passage. He quoted a passage of scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, that simply says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus here shows that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God should be more precious to us than food itself. Now you have to admit, what Satan suggested made sense. Jesus, why starve yourself to death when you can make bread everywhere around you? But here's what Jesus said. What is written makes even more sense. You see, hunger represents human wants. And the idea is, if Jesus is going to use his sonship, his divine prerogative to exempt himself, from human need. If Jesus is going to say, you know what, I know I became a man, I know I walk around among these people, but listen, I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to put up with this hunger. I don't have to put up with this inconvenience. I can clap my hands or think a thought or say a word and everything can be different. But Jesus refused to do that. Now, I want you to notice something. It wasn't that Jesus refused supernatural help in feeding himself. I don't mean to spoil this for you, but in the last couple verses we're going to look at tonight, angels come and minister to Jesus after he weathers the storm of all of these temptations. They brought Jesus what you might call supernatural food, right? At least it came from supernatural beings. No, it's not that Jesus was against receiving supernatural help. It's not as if Jesus was saying, well, no, uh, uh, bread from stones? Never. I'll only eat bread if I make it with my own two hands. That wasn't Jesus' attitude. No, what he refused was that he would not receive this bread until it was the Father's will until it was the Father's timing for him. And so what did he say? He said, it is written. I want you to notice something. 
Jesus relied on the power and the truth of God's word. And it showed by this that Jesus was willing to fight this battle as a man. What Jesus could have done, and I half wish he would have done this, he could have rebuked Satan into another galaxy, right? Just, I rebuke you, Satan, boom. And Satan's off beyond the Milky Way, Andromeda galaxy, something like that, right? It could have happened that way. Or Jesus could have done something else. But instead, he resisted him in a way that we can also resist Satan and his messengers, right? Jesus resisted Satan in a way that you and I can also. He used scripture to battle Satan's temptations. He didn't use some elaborate spiritual power that's inaccessible to us. Jesus fought this battle as a man, and he did not draw on some special resource that is unavailable to us. He used the only the weapons that you and I can use. By the way, could not have Jesus spoken a new revelation at this point? Couldn't he have? Isn't the New Testament filled with new revelations from Jesus? Isn't the New Testament filled with new words from Jesus? That's all you find. Jesus saying, doing, all the, the New Testament is filled with new words of God, new compared to the Old Testament. But Jesus didn't do any of that. Jesus said, I am going to rely on something that my people can rely on also, and that is the word of God. He could have stood against Satan with a display of his own glory. He could have stood against Satan with logic and reason. Instead, Jesus used the word of God as a weapon against Satan and temptation. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus used a weapon that you can use when you're all alone. Jesus used a weapon that, that defended his relationship with God. He used a weapon to defeat temptation. But might I say that Jesus used a weapon that was effective because he understood it. Now, we can effectively resist temptation in the same way that Jesus did. We counter Satan's seductive lies by shining the light of God's truth upon them. If you are ignorant of God's truth, if you're ignorant of God's word, then you are not well prepared to fight against temptation. But Jesus overcame this temptation with these very words. Now, verse 5, here comes the second temptation. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Well, that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Here, Satan is quoting Scripture back to Jesus and using Scripture in the temptations. It's always pretty awkward when Satan's teaching a Bible study. <laughs> then Jesus said to him, verse 7, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. You could say that Satan was tempting Jesus to force or manipulate God the Father into a supernatural event. Here Satan appealed to the desire within every person to sense approval from God the Father and to have that approval publicly demonstrated. 
isn't there something deep within you that wants to be approved by God? Of course there is. And isn't there something deep within you that would not mind that approval being made as public as possible? You you want other people to know that God is all right with you, that, that God smiles upon you. And so what did he do? He set him upon what is called the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple was part of the architecture of the whole temple mount area. And it was some 200 feet, uh, you know, perhaps uh, 70 meters from the floor of the Kidron Valley. And a leap from the pinnacle of the temple and the appearance of the promised angelic protection would be a remarkable spectacle. Jesus jumps off this very high, prominent place, and as he jumps off, angels rush in to support him and to keep him from smashing himself against the rocks below. That would be pretty spectacular, would it not? Surely anybody would say that is, yes, there's a man whom God approves of. Yes, there's a man who has divine favor. What the devil suggested was that Jesus artificially create a crisis and then see if God would come through in the artificially created crisis. Now Jesus just had this same kind of spectacular demonstration of his baptism. Didn't he have a very spectacular demonstration of the fact that he was the son of God and publicly so at his baptism? But that must have seemed very far away to Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting in the wilderness. So what did Satan say? Satan said some frightening words that are, I should say, they're frightening to hear them from Satan. Satan said, it is written. The devil can use that phrase also. The devil can quote the scripture. And we can trust that the devil has memorized the Bible himself. And we can trust that Satan himself is an expert at quoting scripture. Now he's an expert quoting it out of its context and for the purpose of confusing and defeating those people whom he tempts. This time, the passage that the devil quoted was Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. And Satan took this passage out of its context to say this, go ahead, Jesus, If you do this, then the Bible promises that angels will rescue you and you will be spectacularly promoted among everybody. You could say that Satan borrowed the Lord's own weapon by saying it is written, but he didn't use it rightfully or lawfully. It wasn't in the nature of Satan to quote the scriptures correctly. He left out a very essential word that we'll take a look at in just a minute. You see, we could say that Satan both falsely quoted and wrongly applied this verse. There's an essential phrase that Satan left out from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12. The essential phrase that he left out is this. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. What did he leave out? He left out the phrase, to keep you in all your ways. You see, to test God in this way was not of Jesus' way. It was not the way of the Savior. It was not the way of the Messiah. 
God has never promised or ever given the protection of angels in sinful and forbidden things. Oh, Lord, I'm going to sin right now really badly. Please send your angels to protect me as I sin. That's basically what Satan was implying that Jesus should do. Yet Jesus understood this, and he counteracted. He understood that Satan left out that phrase, to keep you in all your ways. But not only was the text falsely quoted, it was also wrongly applied. Because it was not used to teach, it was not used to encourage, but instead it was used to deceive. This was making this word from Deuteronomy a promise, excuse me, from Psalm 91, a promise to be fulfilled on the premise of Jesus' neglect of his own duty. In other words, to force God into a miracle, to, to do something deliberately reckless, to artificially create a crisis and then trust God to see you through it. You see, Jesus understood something much better than any of Satan's understanding. Jesus understood from his own knowledge of the whole counsel of God that Satan was twisting this passage from Psalm 91. Jesus knew how to rightly divide the word of truth. And by the way, this is something important for us to know. It's fairly sad today that there are many people who are willing to believe anybody who quotes from the Bible. A preacher can pretty much say whatever he wants to, if he begins by quoting the Bible and then quotes it a few times through his talk. It's important for each Christian to know the Bible for themselves and not to be deceived by somebody who quotes the Bible but doesn't quote it accurately and doesn't quote it with a correct application. So what did Jesus answer? You see it right there. Jesus said to him in verse 7, It is written again. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus responded with scripture, but with scripture that was applied correctly to the situation. He knew that attempting to force or manipulate God the Father into this kind of demonstration of glory would tempt God, and that's something that is strictly forbidden. Now, by the way, this warns us against something that I think we have to take seriously. This warns us against demanding something spectacular from God to prove that he loves us, to prove that he's concerned about us. God has already given us the ultimate demonstration of his love. Do you know what the ultimate demonstration of his love is? It's what Jesus did at the cross. It is impossible for God to do anything more spectacular for us than what Jesus did at the cross. You know, I think about this when I pray for people. For some reason, I think about this when I pray for people for healing. When I'm laying my hands on somebody and praying for them for healing, I call out to God and I say, Lord, heal this person. But I always say, or almost always, I say something like this. I say, Lord, we're not asking you to heal them to prove your love to us. We already know that you love us. You've already proven to us that at the cross. No, Lord, we're just asking for a fresh demonstration of your love but you've already proved it. Don't ever think that you have to ask God to prove his love more than he already has. Again, the focus is again on his relationship to God. 
as the Son of God, Jesus could say, God the Father won't let me perish. But listen, as God the Son, he also had to say, I will live in that constant relationship of dependence upon the Father. First temptation, second temptation, now the third temptation. I need to say one thing here before we look at the third temptation. In 1 John, John describes three different kinds of temptations. He describes the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. I think we see this in all three temptations. If you want to say the first temptation to create bread was an appeal to the lust of the flesh. The second temptation was an appeal to the pride of life, for Jesus to be glorified in this way. The third temptation was an appeal to the lust of the eyes, as we're going to see, beginning at verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We could say that essentially this vision invited Jesus to take a shortcut around the cross. Okay, Jesus. You don't need to go to the cross to win all the kingdoms of the world back for God the Father. You can do it right now by simply bowing down and worshiping before me. You could say that Jesus came to win all the kingdoms of the world and their glory back from Satan's domain. And Satan here now offers them to Jesus if Jesus will only fall down and worship him. It might seem like a small thing. Jesus could win all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory and do so without enduring the cross. Now let me ask you a very simple question. Is it a good thing for all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory to be given over to the Son of God? Yes, that's a good thing. Of course it's good. Matter of fact, that's what's going to happen at the end of the age. All the kingdoms of the world, all their glory will be given over to the Son of God, in a sense greater than they are ever given over to Him now. But we understand that the danger is the greatest when the purpose is something good. And this was a good thing. And therefore Satan tempted him with it. And all Jesus would have to do would be to give to Satan what Satan was longing for ever since Satan fell from glorious to profane. What did Satan want? Worship and recognition from God himself. Now, by the way, I consider this to be a very revealing insight into Satan's heart. Worship and recognition are more precious to him than the possession of all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. In other words, Satan has these things in some way now that we'll talk about in just a minute. But he was more than willing to let go of all of it if only Jesus would worship him. That was more important to Satan than having these kingdoms themselves. Satan is very much still the same one who said these words from Isaiah 14. I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's the same being who said those things. That's what he wants. He wants worship. He wants honor. He wants recognition. Now, what exactly does it mean when it says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory? Well, some people think that Jesus was literally taken up to a very high mountain and not only literally taken up to a very high mountain, I believe that's so, but also literally showed the kingdoms of this world. Well, here's the problem. If it's with his literal eyes that Jesus saw this, there's not a whole lot of kingdoms of this world that you can see with your physical eyes from the top of any mountain. So I think that what Satan did was took Jesus to some prominent place and showed him in a vision the glory and the splendor of all the kingdoms of this world. I can't say exactly how Satan showed Jesus this. But I'll tell you what, you can be sure that Satan showed Jesus the splendor of these kingdoms without showing them their sin. It was all good what Satan showed Jesus. And then what did he say? He said, after he showed it to him, he said, all these things I will give you. I got to say, this is sort of a mind-blowing verse because you know what it implies for us? It implies for us very strongly, does it not? That they were Satan's to give. If I could tell you, well, you know, um, I'm going to give you the Eiffel Tower. Yes, I'm going to give it to you. You would raise your eye at me and you'd say, um, David, it's not exactly yours to give. That's not much of a temptation, right? But if Satan actually does, in some sense, possess all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, then this is, in fact, a very severe temptation. How did Satan get this authority? Well, you could say that Adam and his descendants gave the devil this authority. God gave Adam the earth as a stewardship. What did God say to Adam? God said to Adam, Look, be fruitful and multiply. I give you the authority. This is your earth. You manage it on my behalf. I give you dominion over these creatures and these creatures. God gave Adam dominion over the earth. And it seems that in the fall, Adam willingly turned over the dominion of the earth to Satan. Now look, I say this is true in a sense. Because in a larger sense, we understand that all things belong to God, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But God allows Satan to function as the God of this age. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's why the fallen world is in the mess that it's in. And then after Adam, every one of Adam's descendants cast their vote of approval by their personal sin. And so this is what he says. He says over and over again, I have these kingdoms. They are under my authority and I can give them to whom I please. Now one thing I want you to notice 
In the first temptation, Satan said, if you are the Son of God, or more properly, since you are the Son of God. In the second temptation, he said, since you are the Son of God. He doesn't say that in the third temptation. Do you know why? Because it wouldn't have fit, right? Since you are the Son of God, why don't you bow down and worship me? That doesn't fit. So Satan very conveniently leaves that out of the third temptation, right? Sometimes Satan's temptations are in much in what he doesn't say as in what he does say. And so, here, he presents the temptation. Jesus, in some sense, I have authority. The human race has given me, has elected me as the authority over the kingdoms of this world. And I will turn all of that over to you if you will worship me. And what did Jesus say? Hey, let me think about that for a minute. I could escape the cross. But Jesus said no such thing, did he? No such thing. Instead, what did Jesus say? He said very plainly, Away with you, Satan, for it is written. Jesus replied with scripture a third time, and he commanded the devil to leave. He commanded the devil to leave. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you and I had that kind of spiritual authority, that we could command the devil to leave? Do you understand that we do have this kind of spiritual authority? I'm not just making this up. Let me read to you from James chapter 4, verse 7. It says there, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't this exactly what Jesus did? And we can do the same thing. We can resist the devil and he cannot stand against us. It worked for Jesus. It says very plainly there, Then the devil left him and it will work for us. Now we should remind ourselves, should we not? that the word of God had the power to resist the devil. And standing on that truth, standing on that promise, Jesus could effectively make this defense. You know, it's very sad, this tendency within the human race. We want to resist the devil through just about any other way than the word of God. Sometimes we want to resist the devil by our own self-will, I resist the devil, I resist the devil, I resist the devil, as if we're trying to work something up within ourselves instead of standing on the confidence in God's word. Other people want to resist the devil by using holy water or, or, or special crosses or the sign of a cross or relics or, or anything like that. Let me tell you, friends, it is not the sign of the cross that overthrows Satan. It is the word of the cross. And that is our defense. Now, We should remind ourselves of this as well. The temptations of Jesus tell us that it is no sin to be tempted as long as the temptation is resisted. Have you ever had the experience where you're severely tempted and you stand against the temptation and when it's over, you don't feel great? You don't feel like, Yahoo! I resisted the temptation. Woo, I'm great. Or, woo, God really did it. Instead, after the temptation is over, you almost feel dirty just from being in the presence of the tempter. Let me tell you, I think that this is a secondary strategy of Satan. He wants you to feel guilty and ashamed over the fact that you're even tempted. Do you understand what a deception that is from Satan? You have no reason to feel guilty because you are tempted. If the Son of God was tempted, then you and I are going to be tempted as well. 
even horrible temptations. And can anybody contemplate a temptation more horrible than Jesus being tempted to worship Satan? That's a pretty bad temptation, isn't it? Even horrible temptations are not in themselves sin if they are resisted. And we can take great confidence in that. We can trust what God's word says. And we can believe it very strongly that it is no sin to be tempted. Okay, finally for tonight, verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Then the devil left him. This means that Jesus won. He won primarily because he understood, he recognized Satan's mode of attack, lies and deception. The primary weapon of Satan is deception. He is a deceiver. And for those people who live in light of the cross, deception is really Satan's only tool because demonic powers were disarmed armed at the cross. I love that verse in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that says that principalities and powers, in other words, these demonic powers, they were disarmed at the cross. Isn't that wonderful to think about? That Satan had all kinds of weapons that he could use against you, but in light of the cross, he's disarmed. But nevertheless, what can an unarmed opponent do against you? What can an unarmed enemy do against you? He can deceive you. The guy comes up to you and he sticks his finger through his jacket, you know, pretending like he has a gun. He says, give me all your money. Well, why should I give you all my money? It's a little small guy, you know. You could just push him away. You better give me all my money because I have a gun. It's in my jacket. Now, let me tell you, that only works if you believe it. If you believe it, he may as well have a gun, right? If you believe it, it, should, it could just as well be a gun in there. But when Satan comes and deceives us, if we believe it, it's just as if it was true at all. Satan's deceptions can be, they have the potential to be very effective at leading us into sin and causing us to live lives of fear and unbelief. And Jesus showed us the only effective answer to deception, and that's God's truth, not man's wisdom. The first thing you have to do is see the temptation for what it is. It's a lie. I'm tempted to some pleasure or some experience, and it offers me so much wonderful things in life. Can't I see for, that's a lie. It's not good for me. It's not. This thing that tempts me, it's not good. I just need to combat it with the truth. I must build myself up in the truth and have it in my heart. You know what I find very fascinating about the three passages of Scripture that Jesus used to answer Satan? They're all from Deuteronomy chapters 6 and 8. I don't know how many of you are expert at quoting verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and 8. Those aren't really tremendously exciting chapters from the Bible. But it is not unreasonable to suppose 
that Jesus was meditating on those very passages when he fought Satan. And you could say, and I know this is a, a supposition, it's a speculation, but, but don't you think it would be true that Jesus fought Satan with some fresh bread, spiritually speaking, that he had just fed upon? I think it's helpful for us to always have some fresh bread to answer Satan with. Every one of them is from this book of Deuteronomy. Now, Jesus thought that this was very important for us to know. Do you know why Jesus thought this was very important for us to know? Matthew records it. Mark records it. Luke records it. In some way, John records it. It's recorded in several Gospels. Now, here's my point. How could any of those guys know what happened unless Jesus told them? Can't you see Jesus explaining this to his disciples sometime when he's teaching them? Say, let me tell you guys what happened after I was baptized. Oh, the baptism was glorious. Oh, the waters of the cool Jordan River were so refreshing. But then it felt like the Spirit of God drove me into the furnace of the wilderness to be tempted. And let me tell you guys exactly what happened. See, we need to learn from this. We need to learn how we can overcome temptation, but even more importantly, we need to learn how Jesus overcame temptation on our behalf. He succeeded as the sinless Son of God where Adam and Moses and everybody else before him had failed. You see, the real answer in this passage is not so much you can overcome temptation too, even though that's true. The real point of this passage that Jesus Christ overcame temptation on your behalf, and the indwelling Jesus can help you to overcome temptation as well. Do you realize that living inside you, if you are a Christian, living inside you is the best temptation overcomer that ever lived on this earth? And as you let him live his life through you, as you understand and appreciate and walk in his abiding life with you, you're going to experience this as well. I don't want to miss the last phrase of verse 11. Isn't it wonderful? And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Oh, I wish I could have seen that. I wish I could have seen a bunch of angels high-fiving Jesus, celebrating with him. Yes, you showed him something. Way to go, Jesus. Good job. And they came and ministered to him. It shows us that God never sakes those who endure through temptation. And even as angels came and ministered to Jesus, God will find a way to minister to us and meet our needs as we endure temptation. That word ministered implies especially the provision of food. They brought him food. I wonder what they brought him. We'll have to find out when we get to heaven. What did the angels bring Jesus to eat? But I want you to notice something. These angels could not come upon the scene until Jesus had finished defeating Satan. Can't you just see those angels? There they are. They're like, let us go in there. Let us help Jesus. Let us defend him. Come on, Father. Come on, God the Father. Let us do it. Let us do it. And what did God the Father say? He says, no, no. Jesus must battle this as a man. 
He must not have remarkable, spectacular, angelic intervention because his people need to know that he conquered these temptations just in the same way that they are faced with them. And he draws on the same resources that are also available to him, that he is their champion, not someone who receives special assistance from angels. Now, the angels only came and ministered to him when the battle was done, when the duel was ended, and then they couldn't wait to minister unto Jesus. Well, that's it for us tonight. But don't miss the point. Yes, this passage shows us how we can overcome temptation. But far more importantly, it shows us our great champion, Jesus Christ, who overcame temptation on our behalf and thankfully now, now lives in us. And we can share in his victory. Father, that's our prayer. It's exciting to read tonight, Lord, about how the sinless, spotless Son of God overcame temptation. And as he overcame temptation, Lord, he becomes our champion, our hero. And now we just want to be identified in him. We want to live and experience and receive his victory on our behalf. Lord, show us how to live in Jesus, how to abide in him, how to push away every seductive voice of the tempter. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.